Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Leslie D. won free groceries and shop, play, win Monopoly at Safeway. Don't miss your chance with only three weeks left to play. Satisfy your thirst with Coca-Cola, bubbly or sparkling ice. Take a snack break with Sargento cheese or Ritz and serve up fun with Pop-Tarts. Increase your chances to win. Shop these bonus ticket items specially tagged in store. Download the Shop, Play, Win app to play today. No purchase necessary. See rules at www.shopplaywin.com. Hasbro is not a sponsor of this promotion. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of June 3rd, 2019. This podcast episode is being released on Draft Day. The 2019 Major League Baseball draft begins on Monday with the first and second round picks and then continues with the third to tenth round on Tuesday and wraps up in a very quick fire session on Wednesday all the way up to the 40th round. It's going to be a busy day tracking these picks, but the most important pick of them all is pick three for the Chicago White Sox in the first round. What's the latest buzz about that pick? Well, join us later in the show is Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs.com. We'll also recap the action down on the farm in the minor league report and answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, the Chicago White Sox are tied for second place in the American League Central, baby. A 6-1 homestand has energized the team and fans all of a sudden. The White Sox are just two games back in the wildcard race. I know, it's early June, but man, is this a breath of fresh air. Can this streak continue as they head on the road to Washington, D.C. in Kansas City this week? Well, joining me as the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Man, what a week. Did you think we'll be talking about a White Sox team just one game below 500 on June 3rd? I did not. Um, 
Yeah, it was just, you know, the, the kind of homestand that the White Sox have not had where they start strong, they end strong, they, they sustain excitement. People go to the park and remember why they like going to the park and want to go back. Uh, so I think uh, uh, it, it, this kind of homestand was long overdue. And the one loss, you can make the argument they should have won. It's the game they lost 4-1. to one. But they had some... They had some uh, blunders, let's call it that way. The double toot plan, the very rare double toot oh, yeah. plan, uh, <laughs> maybe leaving Ivan Nova out <laughs> too long in the game. Um, but whatever bad taste you had after Saturday's game, Lucas Giolito, once again, I, I don't know what else we can say about him, Jim. It is every podcast episode. We rave about how good he has been. And again, he throws eight, what, almost eight scoreless innings? No, he got pulled in the eighth inning. So Seven and a third. Seven and a third. Seven and a third scoreless innings again. Nine strikeouts, no walks. I mean, we're talking about all-star Lucas Giolito at this moment, right? Yeah, we are. Um, and I, I go back to that Astro start because, I mean, the Indians' offense is bad. Uh, they're really undermanned. And then you look at the other teams he's beaten, like the Blue Jays and the Royals, and they're unremarkable at best, too. So you get to, you know, you get this run of weak opponents and you think like, okay, he's, you know, he can beat those guys and he can beat the Indians twice. Yeah, that's that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm looking for with these starts is that like he's faced the Indians twice and they, they're no closer to figuring them out. He faced the Blue Jays twice. He faced the Royals twice, I think three times. And they're no closer to really staying on them, figuring them out. So, I mean, like, even though he's faced a weak schedule... You would think with repeating these opponents over and over again that they would figure him out, they would have a better video on him, they would have a better idea, and he just, you know, for whatever reason, uh, I guess, yeah, I would say for multiple reasons rather, not whatever, I mean, his fastball seems to get a little bit crisper each time out. Uh, he is able to tweak his uh, changeup and slider and curveball usage just enough to, uh, I guess, defy expectations, and it's just uh, he's able to keep it going. And I, I think that Astro start is... It, it provides me great comfort, I guess, when you have all these starts against subpar opponents. When he throws his shutout, his best start of the season against the Astros of all teams, uh, that's, I think, the missing piece of what had been his uh, resume. And it's hard to see, like, you know, maybe he'll have a, he'll have a burp here and there where he, uh, he stumbles, gives a couple homers with guys on and, and, and misses a quality start. But with the stuff he has right now, it's hard to see why he couldn't keep it going and be an above-average pitcher the rest of the season. Yeah, just the most improved player in Major League Baseball by far. Got even Jonah Carey now jumping on the bandwagon. I don't know if you saw his tweet that he may become a White Sox fan now oh, yeah. after I, watching Giolito start. Yeah, I told him I would uh, give him the paperwork next time I was in Montreal. <laughs> I think he lives in Denver now, though. I think he's back in Montreal, but I'll have to look that up. I think he moved back. Well, regardless, you are you're responsible for making this happen, Jim. I'll do what I can. <laughs> Oh, so that's Giolito. But how about the rest of the team? Can the White Sox continue playing this well? Well, I looked into the numbers, and we talk about run differential quite a bit on this show because I do think it is a good metric to see on how strong a team is. I mean, last year you could – there are some times where you have fluke instances like Seattle last year. Seattle was awesome. 
in one-run games because Edwin Diaz was awesome as a closer for them. And even though they had a negative run differential, they were several games above 500. And even the Texas Rangers a couple years ago, I think won close to 90 games and they had an even run differential. Those are fluky things. If you have a even run differential, zero, you score as many runs as you allow, you're an 81-81 and team. Well, the White Sox right now at 29-30 and have a run differential of negative 43. And the expected win-loss record for the White Sox would be 25-34. and 34. So the White Sox are overachieving by four games. Now, I blame that run differential on the series against the Rays, the Red Sox, and the Twins. Because in those 10 games, the White Sox went 1-9, and they got smoked with a negative 61 run differential. Because those games were blowouts for the White Sox. Against everyone else, including the Yankees and the Astros, the White Sox are 28-21 and 21 with a plus-18 run differential. And I think it's okay to say this because the team is a bit confusing still and hazy in what they could be projected for the rest of 2019, Jim. But let's try. Are they close to being a consistent team like the 28-21 and 21 record I just mentioned? Or is it just a matter of time before they crash and burn again like they did against the Rays, Red Sox, and Twins? Can I say in between? You always say in between. I know. So, but... of course. <laughs> of course well, no, you I can. Don't, I think crash and burn is a bit strong. I think, you know, they have enough talent now, like with, with Giolito stepping up and looking like a rotation leader. That's something I didn't expect before or even in April when he looked, you know, pretty decent. Uh and, and getting rid of Irvin Santana, having um, some bullpen guy, you figuring out the order of the bullpen and, and understanding who's the most uh, trustable, trustworthy, and and uh, high leverage situations that helps. So I, I think you know they're not bad. I think they can beat the teams worse than them. I, I do think they're going to struggle to beat teams better than them. Teams with deep lineups. I know they split with the Astros. That was encouraging. Um, they beat the Yankees earlier this year when the Yankees are <laughs> maybe I'm not sure if at their most injured. It's hard to tell right now. Like uh, you know, given how many bodies they've lost, but they were very injured when the White Sox beat them uh, two out of three. So there's that. Uh, but I think when it comes to those teams right now, as long as they have two holes in the rotation, and I think Banuelos and Covey are holes at this point still. Um, it really, really makes it hard to sustain a you know, a stretch like this, and, and they've done it, and that, you know that's encouraging that they've won uh, six out of seven in a week, and they get some off days. But uh, that's that's what gives me pause is to saying like they can really capitalize on this and, and push over five hundred. When I wrote that post about Alex Colome and just how <laughs> remarkable he'd been in save situations, and that uh, opponents are now two four thirty nine against them in save opportunities. And the White Sox haven't uh, blown a lead in the ninth inning, and I think they've, uh, you know, they, I think they've lost one game that they've led at the fifth inning. That's, uh, well, one uns- unsustainable. But also, I think when it comes to you know that kind of luck or uh, you know whatever you want to call it in those kind of games, that kind of bullpen performance, I, I think you'd expect them to be you know over five hundred at that point with that kind of luck. Like that's how Baltimore got in beat projections a couple of years. That's how Kansas City beat projections just with really strong bullpen performances. 
that did not waver over the course of a six-month season. The White Sox are getting that kind of bullpen luck or, you know, the, the lead protection, and they're still game under 500. So if they normalize that in any way, if Alex Colome has a couple bad games, uh, if, you know, Kelvin Herrera doesn't figure it out and Evan Marshall comes back down to earth, they could blow a game in the seventh or eighth. And then, you know, if, if they get even normal luck there, uh, and, and if you assume that regression is going to set in at some point, then that's another thing they're going to have to overcome. So I think that's why I, I, you know, when I wrote that post, I was like halfway encouraged saying like, hey, great. You know, this is Colome has been, you know, Omar Narvaez turns out he's a little bit of a steep price to pay, but, you know, they're getting that performance. But when they're overperforming and they're still having trouble getting the 500, uh, that seems like they're not taking advantage of that enough. There are people who call the White Sox bum slayers. But the reason I'm optimistic, Jim, is that there's a lot of bums in the American League. Yeah. And the White Sox are 5-12 and 12 this season against teams above 500. So I'm with you. When they are facing the Yankees again, when the Yankees come to Chicago, not expecting positive things from that weekend. When they face the Rays again in Tampa Bay in July, I'm not expecting good things. Uh, when they visit Fenway, not expecting good things. When Houston comes to Chicago, not expecting good things. But I just listed, what, five teams in the American League? Because uh, you have to include the Minnesota Twins as well, uh, as they just look fantastic. Uh, there's still 10 other teams in the American League. And if the White Sox can collect wins against their fellow bums and they could rise to the cream of the crop from the bums <laughs> in the league, uh, <laughs> maybe there's a chance of them to beat out their projection and by quite a bit. And maybe there is a chance, man, I don't want to feed into the optimism too much because we try to be realistic on this show, but maybe it's not too far fetched that this team could win 75 plus games, maybe even get, to 81 wins, but it would require them to continue to beat up the bums. No, it's, it's worth pursuing. That's why, you know, when it comes to um, some trade rumors, like figuring out whether they should trade a guy like Alex Colome or whether they should, you know, push for trades or see if they can get on in on uh, Seattle's unloading or, you know, whatever opportunities are available earlier than usual. Uh, yeah, I maybe don't want to get carried away with that just because, you know, it could be just a rough month ahead. Basically, all it takes is like two bad weeks to send the White Sox, you know, creening out of contention and then it's back to selling or, you know, adding for the big picture. But I, I think when as long as they're like, you know, one or two games out of the wild card and as long as Boston is, seems to be really slow playing its hand uh, right now uh, and not really able to keep up with the other AL East teams, it's worth pursuing it's worth taking it seriously and, and and giving it on a shot seeing if like maybe Eloy Jimenez you know flips the switch and becomes that middle of the order threat they're right now lacking behind like their top three four hitters uh you know that would help um you know if Dylan Cease comes up and yeah provides early Carlos Rodon type performances where he throws you know five decent innings each time out you know that might be enough to improve and you know get over that uh, 75 went hump and then get into the the realm of luck. But I, I think, you know, given the toughness of the schedule between now and the all-star break um, and, and the number of quality offenses they're playing, I'm still holding out judgment, you know, and, and seeing like if they get, you know, 
they get clobbered the way they did against the Twins or the Red Sox, where they just look completely overmatched. Because I think, you know, if uh, if the entry for the wild card is like 90 wins because of the top-heavy nature of the league, then, yeah, that's going to be completely out of reach. And I agree with you. I think we're all waiting for Boston to wake up, right? Because right now, yeah. if the season were to end, Jim, it's the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers in the wild card two spot. Yeah. And Oakland's there too, and L.A. is weird because they're banged up. They're kind of, there's like a middle class with Texas and uh, and and the Angels and maybe the White Sox, and Oakland basically looks like a different team week to week. So they do. Know exactly what they are. So maybe <laughs> yeah. they're middle class too, but sometimes they look unbeatable and sometimes they're getting uh, just stomped night after night. So there's a middle class there, and I think the White Sox are in that. Right. But as long as Kansas City continues to nosedive, as long as Detroit continues to nosedive, the White Sox will head to Seattle in September. I don't even know what kind of team Seattle is preparing to field in the second half and what the rumors are coming out. They're, they're trying to trade everyone on their roster pretty much. And you add in Baltimore, which the White Sox are done playing, and then you know with Toronto. Yeah, I think the White Sox record may be a little bit inflated. And they're probably going to overachieve what their run differential says that their real record or expected record should be. But I still take away that there are holes on this roster that need to be addressed. And they're still beating up the bums. Even if you are a bum slayer, good. Because you should be beating those teams. And then we can concentrate on how the White Sox play against teams that are above 500 because that's going to be obviously the difference, right? That's the next step in this rebuild that the White Sox prove that they could beat teams that are above 500 and teams that are fellow contenders. Now, continuing to feed into the optimism, okay, let's say that this switch is turned and the White Sox continue to hover around 500. You were alluding to this idea, Jim. There are rumors that other teams are starting to kick the tires on Alex Colome. And why not? As you wrote, Jim, and you talked about what posing hitters are two for 39 against him in safe situations. It's ridiculous. He's lights out so far in safe situations. And we know there are a lot of teams in Major League Baseball that need bullpen help, like the Chicago Cubs, for example. We'll revisit this conversation a month from now, and it may be a different answer that we're going to give right now in this episode. But do you want the White Sox to start entertaining moving Colome for more prospects? Or do you want the White Sox to keep Colome as he does have another year of control? Right now I'm leaning towards keep just because thinking about the past couple of years when they've traded relievers who are in demand, Tommy Canely, you know, maybe that's a little hard to isolate Canely just because they got rid of some salary with Robertson and Frazier and such. But, you know, Blake Rutherford is the only player out of that deal and, He's right now really struggling in double A. And then you have, uh, you know, Joaquin Soria, who only used a rental. So he's not quite the same thing. But, um, you know, he brought back uh, Cody Medeiros. And Medeiros still hasn't won a game at Birmingham. He's got an ERA over seven and looks like a reliever. And just in time for Lugies to be kind of phased out of the game. So that doesn't look great. Uh, maybe Anthony Swarzak for Ryan Cordell is maybe their biggest success story of recent reliever flips. So when it comes to the, you know, the kind of, I guess, prospect they might be able to get, uh, I guess I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm not encouraged, or I guess I don't want the White Sox just to trade for any top hundred prospect. Um, just because I think they're past the point in the rebuild where 
they're, you know, even though they need depth, that just, you know, acquiring, I guess, less sure players, you know, players down a couple levels. Uh, I don't know how much that adds to the big picture versus having Kalame's ability to help the uh, team win games now. So I guess I'm, you know, more skeptical. On the other hand, you know, I'd say if he shows this for another month and becomes maybe the top closer to be in the market, then I, I might consider that more strongly. But I think right now um, I'm not all that excited about the idea. Again, we'll see where the White Sox are in a month. I mean, if they're still hovering around 500, does that that do you think that plays a factor in the calculation for Rick Hahn, whether or not he would move an asset like Alex Colomay? I think so. Um, yeah, I guess you know if they're around 500, but maybe you know six games back of the wild card, then maybe it becomes easier to sell. But I, I think on the other hand, if you have a young team that's learning how to win and you want to reward them for winning. I don't know if, you know, trading, you know, one of your most valuable players, or at least most valuable to you know, closing out the winning parts of the schedule. Uh, I wonder if that would be counterproductive or taken poorly by the roster. If it's not for some like, you know, highly touted prospect or, you know, some kind of can't lose, you know, if, if it's for like a Madero, sorry, um, or for Rutherford or somebody who's more of a project to further away, then that would be, I think, a little bit demoralizing. And even though maybe the White Sox shouldn't take that into account, I think there is a human aspect. And I think they would want to reward players for, you know, overachieving. It seemed like they'd be getting punished for playing better than they thought, at least in, in some parts of the roster. All right. So to wrap up as far as this weekend series, the White Sox are seven and five against the Cleveland Indians. Jason Kipnis had some post-game comments about, the White Sox and Indians having the same record and obviously the Indians are not playing all that well. And he thinks the White Sox are playing at their best. Uh, and you should take that into perspective of the records so far in 2019. Uh, I'd still say even despite the injuries that Cleveland has sustained, they are still really underachieving uh, as a team. But for Cleveland, Jim, I don't know. For me, they look like a 78-win team right now. Like, they're going to finish 78-84 and 84 if they could continue to play this, uh, I guess, poorly. Let's let's just call it like that because offensively, it's not there. Defensively, it has been terrible. I thought Trevor Bauer was going to kill his third baseman uh, when he walked off the mound uh, in his start uh, on Friday. Uh, I just think Cleveland is a bad team. Do you agree? Yeah, they're not great, especially with the injuries. Uh, I think there are two things that make them worse than they looked entering the season. One is Jose Ramirez just not really impacting the, the dude slugging three yeah, ten. Had, yeah, he looks, and I think he looks better against the White Sox than he does against the rest of the league because he's had some hits and he's uh, he, he's come up uh, with some some clutch moments over the White Sox Indian series, but. You know, if that's what he looks like when he's at his best, uh, then I, I, you know, I can only imagine what he looks like against the other teams where his numbers are uh, being dragged down to where they are now. So there's that. And I think, you know, when, when, yeah, their offense is basically based around Lindor and Ramirez and maybe Carlos Santana is like a number three, but really the two stars are driving the thing. And if they only have one of them, you know, that hurts. And then the pitching staff getting banged up with uh, Corey Kluber and Mike Clevenger being out. But even then, you know, you see Zach Plesac come up and, you know, he looked good. And and I think he's somebody mm-hmm. who can provide starts. Uh, Shane Bieber's, you know, plenty good for an American League rotation. So, I mean, they're still getting pitching. And their bullpen's, you know, decent. 
So I, I think you know when you when you look at the roster, it's like it's not a complete loss. But as as long as their offense is that bad, and if you know, as we talked about before, if they go into some kind of sell, to where they maybe they trade Bauer or they you know just you know offload Santana or something like that, you know, then I think they can you know fall even further just because you know, they'll be I guess digging into the one thing that keeps them afloat, which is their pitching. But yeah, they don't look good, um, and it's hard to see you know how they're going to get better with the talent they have on hand. Oh, one thing, uh, before we uh, get into the next series, there, we got this question in P.O. Sox, and I didn't know if we're going to quite get to it, but uh, we got a lot of questions about uh, Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel. And I think it's along these lines of, you know, adding and, and what to think. I think they're compelling to a lot of people because they can be added without, um, you know, cutting into the prospect depth, without losing a draft pick, without, uh, you know, and they're spending money that they didn't spend, that they're planning to spend this offseason, they didn't. So it's really not costing them anything in terms of their long-term bottom line. I'm thinking that, you know, I would like to see the White Sox take a run at one or both. I, I think it's going to be hard for them to make a uh, make themselves more compelling than other teams offering a similar amount of money. Like you know, if they want to go to a contender, if they want to join a team that's already you know, favored projections wise to make the off season or make the postseason, then I think the White Sox are climbing an uphill battle, but I would like to see them in on it. Sure. I'm not ready to get hurt again when it comes to the White Sox pursuits of free agents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's happened. I, they can't season. hurt me anymore. <laughs> but, but no, I think in this case, my, my, my expectations would be lower just because they should have the pick of the entire league and the White Sox aren't a destination in that regard. So, you know, maybe a few teams couldn't really justify, you know, paying Keuchel, but the White Sox have room for him. White Sox, yeah, yeah any mm-hmm. team has room for Kimbrel, even if he's, you know, not at his peak. But, yeah, I just have a hard time seeing them winning, but I would like to see them, you know, make a credible attempt because they help and they can't hurt. I just don't know what moves the needle for Rick Hahn, Jim. I mentioned this after the Manny Machado signed with San Diego. This 25-man roster is going to need to learn on how to win in spite of its front office. I don't have faith in the front office making the strategic acquisitions to help boost this 25-man roster. So the guys that are currently on this roster right now are going to have to figure it out. I think that's fair. But I think in this case, you know, given that uh, all the financial barriers are down... It's just going to be, I think, wide open for, yeah, it'll be, I guess, the benefit of actually waiting until the draft for, you know, guys like Keuchel and Kimbrell, because otherwise they've lost two months of the season. They'll need a tune-up. Uh, it's really hurt them in terms of their, their standing in the game. I think they're going to get signed very quickly. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised to get signed this week. And it would be great if the White Sox did that. And I agree with you. The White Sox should. They should go sign both of them and just shock the baseball world and everybody be like, what are the White Sox doing? They're going for it. They're aiming for that second wild card. They're going to try to have a winning season because they've never have under Rick Hahn's uh, tenure as general manager. I'm just not expecting that to happen. Agreed. So with the White Sox now, after their very successful homestand, they are now having a five-game road trip as they'll be visiting Washington, D.C., and later this weekend, the Kansas City Royals. They do have the days off on Monday and on Thursday, so it gives the White Sox some time to 
Give some additional rest as Yohan Mikata didn't play on Sunday, so he'll have two days rest before he's back in the lineup on Tuesday. And before we preview that two-game series against the Washington Nationals, a quick word from our sponsor, SeatGeek. With millions of live event tickets and a price match guarantee, SeatGeek proves there's a better way in buying tickets, searching sports, live music, comedy, and more. SeatGeek has the tickets you're looking for all in one place. In an industry that tends to stagnate, SeatGeek decided to stand out from the crowd. And they did that by building the fastest way to find tickets so you can stop searching for the perfect seat and start enjoying it. A quick look on how SeatGeek works. You look at their app store and they have over 50,000 five-star reviews. That's terrific for customer satisfaction. They pull in millions of tickets from all over the web. They rate each ticket on a scale of 1 to 10. And finally, SeatGeek displays them on an interactive seat map. And SeatGeek breaks down the details. The green dots mean those deals are good. You should buy those tickets. Red dots, stay away. Those tickets are overpriced. And with every purchase fully guaranteed, and they have digital tickets so they can upload to your phone, it's great, especially if you're looking to buy tickets to go to Chicago White Sox games. And I use SeatGeek all the time to buy tickets to go to the White Sox games. And when the White Sox do come back into town next week for two games against the Washington Nationals or the four games against the New York Yankees, those are tough tickets to get. So if you're looking for a good deal, Go to SeatGeek.com, and the best part is that our listeners get to save $10 off their first purchase on SeatGeek by using our promo code SOCKSMACHINE. So just download the app onto your smartphone, use promo code SOCKSMACHINE for $10 off on your first purchase at SeatGeek. And again, the White Sox are now heading to the nation's capital to face the Washington Nationals. And while we were talking about the Cleveland Indians being a head-scratcher and underachieving, it's on another level with the Washington Nationals. The Nationals are 26-33. and They're fourth place in the National League East. Now, they have been playing better baseball. They are 7-3 and in their last 10 games. And the pitching problems for this series between the Nationals and the White Sox on Tuesday night at 6.05 p.m. Central Time, it is Ronaldo Lopez for the White Sox against Steven Strasburg. The last time Strasburg faced the White Sox was back in 2010. It's been a minute. That was the uh, Gavin Floyd uh, Barack Obama game. Was it? I believe so. Wow. Yeah, long time ago. And on Wednesday at 12.05 p.m. Central Time in afternoon tilt, it's Dylan Covey against Anibal Sanchez. And Jim, like I mentioned, the Nationals are like the Indians. They should be much better than what their record actually is. But the Nationals' glaring weakness is the bullpen. Washington's bullpen ranks dead last in Major League Baseball with a 6.85 ERA. Could this be a two-game series where we are hoping the White Sox keep it close to take advantage of the Nationals' bullpen woes? Yeah, that's where it seems like their struggles are. Just, uh, yeah, I think ever since, I think it was Coda Glover and uh, Trevor Rosenthal, I think they were really hoping for them to be, you know, maybe not the, the closer. Sean Doolittle's their closer. Pretty good one. But I, I think when it comes to Glover and Rosenthal, having both of them, you know, missing time because of injuries and, and whatever Rosenthal is going through, uh, just completely blew up their plan for the bullpen. And now they're starting all over. And I think, you know, it's an uphill climb, especially since, uh, well, ever since, like, you know, Dave Martinez has been there and they've, they had the problem there last year too, with just underperforming. So I think there's something in, maybe it's that, uh, that Adam Eaton clubhouse juice that, uh, 
you know, we didn't really fully understand with the White Sox until well afterwards, but, uh, you know, he's there too and having a slightly below average season. So there's that, but, uh, going back to the Strasburg start. Yeah, that was his rookie year. I was at that game in, in, uh, Nationals Park and that was like Strasburg at his rookie peak. And I remember, uh, one of the few hits that they got him off was, uh, Gavin Floyd, like looped the single over first base and they ended up, uh, battling to a draw over seven innings and, uh, Barack Obama was there. There were secret service snipers on the roof of the press box <laughs> at Nationals Park. It was a great time. Great recap, Jim. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Well, I don't think Barack Obama is going to be at this game. Uh, he was in Toronto for game two of the between the Warriors and Raptors of the NBA finals. Um, but what else are you looking forward to in this series? Well, I, I would like to see if they can, you know, take that show against a better opponent. Uh, and I think Strasburg, he has, he is having a great season, you know, racking up a ton of strikeouts. So that'll be a nice test, you know, for the offense to see if they can, you know, have respectable showing there. And then it's otherwise it's with, uh, yeah, the pitchers who aren't Lucas Giolito looking for some consistency there. I think we are, are starting to see Ivan Nova at his better. Like, you maybe not his best, but at least somebody who can give the White Sox what they think they're going for. But otherwise, you know, Dylan Covey and such, I think that's, you know, you hope for four innings, then take it from there. I am looking forward to seeing, I haven't seen much of him this year as Juan Soto. Like, I am looking forward to seeing, you know, that kind of talent and hoping that maybe, uh, you know, some of it rubs off on uh, Jimenez. We're going to be recapping this series Wednesday night on Sox Machine Live. Who knows? Maybe we'll be talking about the above 500 Chicago White Sox later this week. How sweet would that be? But, Jim, you and I will reconvene in P.O. Sox as we'll answer listeners' questions. But coming up next, Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs.com joins the show to preview today's Major League Baseball draft and share the latest rumors surrounding the Chicago White Sox third overall pick. Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, Powder Donut. Okay, what's my line? Uh, The only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm going to need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Monday is a big day for the Chicago White Sox. It's another opportunity to add another top-end prospect to their prospect pipeline. Hopefully a top 100 prospect at that with the third overall pick, and hopefully that player will help push the rebuild closer to the transition of a contending team in two to three years. There has been a lot of back and forth on who the White Sox could possibly take third overall, and there are some interesting thoughts on what the White Sox could possibly do in this draft as a whole. Join us to share the latest draft rumors, thoughts about the draft class, and how this draft could impact the White Sox farm system. It's a front of the podcast from Fangraphs.com. It's Eric Loggenhagen. And hello, Eric. Thanks for coming back on the show. Howdy, man. Yeah, you're uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Before this draft starts, there has been a lot of activity, uh, especially with the college baseball regionals going on this weekend. 
And also with the White Sox farm system, there has been some disappointment as far as what's been going on in Double A. But we are very excited for Luis Robert, uh, who's having a tremendous year. Uh, you and Kylie uh, McDaniel, I-, I think, have a unique way of ranking farm systems in baseball, trying to tie it back to a monetary value, which I, I think is smart because I-, I could see where teams themselves uh, calculate how much their assets are uh, from a prospect level. Where do you think the White Sox farm system ranks today in all of baseball prior to this draft? Right, yeah. We uh, we lined up all the systems on the site uh, just a few days ago. We have the White Sox fourth. <clears throat> and I agree with you. Like there are, there are parts of boiling everything down to a monetary asset value that, um, that are flawed. Um, but it is like, you know, the common denominator, like we can kind of convert lots of different things in baseball to a monetary surplus value. Uh, and like, you can quibble about the methodology and stuff, but like, as far as how we can sort of evaluate everything on the same, you know, in the same type of, with the same type of number, uh, like you kind of have to move everything toward money. And so, yeah, like the White Sox, we have uh, ranked fourth right now. We have the farm system valued um, at like two hundred and seventy-eight million, um, and after the the draft, you know, adding what we anticipate will be a very good player at, at pick number three, uh, they should be at around like three hundred and thirty-five million or so, uh, which is still like fourth, um, even after the other team, you know, factoring other teams' draft picks. And so yeah, like it's still a top-heavy farm system. Uh, the, there's a lot of like high end talent at the very top, uh, and the system lacks depth. I agree with you that like the player dev situation doesn't seem to be very good. Um, the you know a lot of the arms in the in the farm system have regressed over the last few years uh, for the most part. Uh, so yeah, like there are some issues, but it's still a very good system. What happens to their system ranking when Aloy Jimenez graduates? It'll be. Let's see the the asset value of like a sixty is is pretty strong. It'll probably take a considerable hit. I'd have to look up the exact. So a sixty position player is fifty five million, uh, which means that as soon as he graduates, you know, after the draft, they would head down to the two hundred eighty million dollar range, which which puts them puts them around seven. Um, but yeah, like, and again, this is one of the issues with doing this is. There's just an arbitrary cutoff for where Eloy is part of the quote unquote farm system, right? Like he's still a good young player under okay. uh, team control for half a decade or more, uh, but he's not rookie eligible anymore, so he's not a prospect. But we like have to have some sort of cutoff uh, for this stuff. So yeah, like um, he'll graduate, the system will move down three spots or so. Uh, but he's you know he's still part of the team and it's one of those it's one of those things that they like to flaw in doing it the way that we do it. Now I highly recommend for all of you listening to listen to uh, Eric and Kylie's podcast, which has a terrific name, the Untitled McDoggenhagen Project podcast. Uh, that just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, it, it is a terrific 
podcast, they even had Jeff Passett on uh, a couple of weeks ago to talk about the implications of an international draft, which we've been talking about for years and may come up in the next CBA. Uh, but you guys' most recent podcast to discuss as far as the latest rumors on, on what is going to be leading up to draft day on Monday. And there's been, a like I mentioned in the intro, there's a lot of chatter back and forth and what the White Sox could possibly do third overall. Nick Hostetler has done the media tour and he claims the team is talking with six prospects for the third pick overall. I don't know why six, because your draft board should probably be only three players when it comes to your third pick. But regardless, uh, do you have a good grasp on what the White Sox are considering to do at pick three, Eric? We thought we've thought for a while. This is like the time of right before the draft here now is like we're recording this on a Saturday. Um, two days before the draft, that it in our experience, uh, Kylie and mine, where it starts to become difficult to separate true information from misinformation. And so like just this morning, uh, the notion that the White Sox were on one of uh, Georgia high school shortstop C.J. Abrams or Cal first baseman Andrew Vaughn seemed pretty stable, you know, unless someone weird went one and Rutschman or Witt got there at three, those two names seem to be who they were considering. Now, this morning, things have started to shift, and it sounds like C.J. Abrams' camp is calling around, uh, like they maybe don't have a home, even past six. Like We thought if the Padres had the opportunity to take C.J. Abrams at six, they would leap at that. Um, but there is there are rumors now this morning that that may not be the case. Uh, so I don't know if that means that the White Sox have settled on Vaughn or if it means that they're considering somebody else at three. I would think if you ask me to pick one right now, it would be the former scenario that they have just sort of settled on Vaughn uh, and that that is their guy. But uh, things are a little less stable right now as I'm speaking to you than we thought they were you know, before we went to sleep. And, you know, we got some great questions from our listeners, and one was from Greg, and and he was asking, you know, how likely are the White Sox to deviate from their past preference for college players towards high school players with higher ceilings? And, and obviously that really stems from the conversation we've had for months from our perspective, uh, Eric, covering what the White Sox could possibly do. Could they go in a different direction? Because it just seems that Andrew Vaughn is – right up the alley of what they've done with Zach Collins and Jake Berger uh, ever since Nick Hostetler uh, has taken over, even Nick Madrigal uh, as well. Do you think, or from what you have heard, are the White Sox close to deviating from just drafting college hitters? It's hard. I think that, yeah, like in the past, uh, even people in the it, with the Sox have, have talked uh, openly to me about uh, changing what appears from the outside to be an explicit college-driven strategy. Uh, you know, the most of the people who are in charge of the draft room, scouting directors and the general managers, they're not really around long enough uh, to to really gauge trends uh, with their strategies. Like a lot of times, you know, if you're picking twelve and you have two high school players and two college players kind of in your mix and the high school players go and you take a college player like you had high school players in your mix but you ended up with a college player it was like a coin flip that you'd end up with a college player and you know if you flipped a coin four times in a row 
you wouldn't be shocked if it landed on heads three three out of four times or all four times in a row. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty reasonable. So, like, we might be seeing trends with teams like this that aren't really there. Like, it's not actually a strategic thing. Um, but the types, it's the types of players, college players that they've ended up with that I'm – uh, you know, I'm lower on, like, I just don't like Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets types of players. Uh, so, so yes, like that type of big bodied college power hitter, um, they seem to target. Yes. Uh, but, but, you know, then you look at Madrigal, you look at like Alec Hansen. Alec Hansen was not a stable college prospect, uh, by any stretch. So, um, so yeah, I, and then there's like the whole, who is making this pick part of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. is it Rick Hahn? Is it, uh, Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams to some degree? Is it, is it Williams and Hostetler? Like who, who really, when push comes to shove, you have to make the third pick in the draft, uh, is the one who, who gets to say who it is. And, uh, I don't know who it is with, with this group. I really don't. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a shift in strategy, I know that that's been mentioned to me, like, yeah, and, and Kylie's heard that as well, like, yeah, like, they're totally shifting the way they do it, but, like, I've heard that in the past, and and it hasn't been the case, so I'm not inclined to believe it now. Let's say they surprise us, and they do go with C.J. Abrams third overall. I think by drafting Abrams, it will challenge the White Sox player development efforts, and one of our listeners, Ed Casey, had a good question about that. Do you do people nationally think the White Sox are making improvements with their player development? Um, improvements, yeah. I think I think that you have to constantly be trying to make improvements, or you're in huge, huge trouble. So I assume that they're working to do different stuff. The specifics uh, of what they're trying to do, I I don't know. Um, I haven't spent enough time on like the backfields uh, over at the White Sox place lately, like to see how things are changing from a player dev perspective. Uh, but, but in my opinion, like it is on the lower end of the orgs um, as far as how they're doing it and the results that they've, they've gotten. And some of it too is like the type of player you draft really dictates like if you look at um you know like the driveline the folks at driveline published a study using some of uh our stuff at the site to kind of show mm-hmm. what teams are having recent impact on player development uh, and i think the white Sox ranked last yep uh so but if you are only targeting mostly these like these big bodied college hitters those guys sort of are what they are and they can only regress. Like they're not growth assets. They're just stable. You hope they're stable and they move quickly and get to the big leagues. Uh, but they're not the kind of guys who are a 40 plus, uh, or a 35 plus future value on our, uh, like draft rankings who through good player development become 45 future values. Like it's not, you know, like that's what we want to see from a 17 or 18 year old is you know over over the course of two years like they improve mm-hmm. and some of the risk stuff that gets baked into our future value grades that stuff goes away like they prove oh i'm not just like this volatile teenage pitcher anymore like now i'm doing this at, at high a at double a uh, and just by virtue of the fact the players they've taken like that sort of thing is not possible uh, so there may be a little bit of a selection uh bias in the way that like uh driveline 
did that study where the White Sox draft picks have not really allowed for that type of growth that would um, be like indicated in that type of study. So I do think that they're like just looking like I've seen the TrackMan readouts, you know, from some of the White Sox pitchers over the last couple of years uh, and everyone's stuff is down except for like um, mm-hmm. Stevens and uh, who's the other the other righty at double A who's like they changed. They raised his arm slot kid from South Carolina, I think. But um, but yeah, like it's not a good situation. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen on that end. It t- there's a, so much player dev infrastructure that needs to be implemented. Um, it's Jimmy Lambert I'm thinking of, by the way. But uh, but yeah, like there's so much infrastructure that has to be put in place just before you can like get some tread and really start to make your players better. There's it's a lot of technological stuff. It's a lot of uh, communication. Making sure that all of your coaches are are sort of rowing in the same direction on each individual player. Uh, like when we wrapped up our org lists, and Riley Pint was on the, the you know Riley we finished with the Rockies and Riley Pint is like a, a horrible mess. Mm-hmm. Start poking around that situation and find out that like you know the the different coaches tell him different things on different days and the teams that are that are adopting. Modern player development realize that having a hub of communication, um, giving your your player dev, your instructors, uh, a way of communicating with each other, so that pit, like an individual pitcher, for instance, has has a player development plan that the organization has set up that everyone shares and is aware of, so that everyone is pushing the player toward that area instead of roving instructors who don't communicate with one another, coming in and out and tweaking things and doing things and undoing things, um, that stuff takes time. So uh, do I think that the player dev has been good? No. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't be. It's just it might take some time, and it's about whether or not the current group is willing to do that stuff uh, and is open to doing that stuff and improving and like realizing that it hasn't been good. And if they're open and willing to, to making changes and doing that stuff, then I think they should – uh, stick around like I think there's value and stability and if they're not then there needs to be a change if the White Sox select Andrew Vaughn obviously he'll need to hit to make it worthwhile to take him third overall because he's limited defensively at first base could Andrew Vaughn provide a similar impact let's say like Peter Alonzo is doing for the New York Mets does Vaughn have that type of potential it would look different it's not that crazy monster power like top of the scale power um but it's like a better it's better feel to hit it's a better approach um i mean i've comped him to paul Konerko. i know so other people have made that mm-hmm. comp as well I have the same comp as well yeah so um well, just because the approach is so good mm-hmm. uh so i i do think that yeah like it would be we have vaughn right now we have 50 future value on vaughn uh which to to do that for like if you look at our overall list in pro ball that's what we had on Alonso. Um, it's what we had on Jordan Alvarez. It's what we have on most of the the best first base DH only types uh, to to be, you know, a three four five win player uh, for half a decade in the big leagues with like that type of body. Um, and when you're when you're competing against the other first baseman in your you know in in baseball uh, with you know only a finite amount of war to go around 
uh, it's hard. It's hard to be like a four or five win first baseman. So yeah, I do think that it would be like we have him evaluated the same as Alonso. Uh, basically, I think it would be more. There would be more bat to ball. There'd be more on base. Uh, driving the offensive production than than just raw power, but I think that the the level of production would be uh, comparable. Yeah, for first baseman, in order to be a three war first baseman on Fangraphs, you have to have a weighted runs created plus of one twenty in the last ten years in order to get that value. So I mean, Vaughn, watching him, I think I've watched twenty of his games this season, Eric, on cool. on Pac twelve Network on on streams. I, I agree with the Paul Canerco comp. Someone you do not want to throw a fastball to, but if you can sneak some breaking pitches on him early, you can you can get Vaughn out. Right, and that's been the problem for him, right? Is like yes, the rest of Cal's lineup. They've got Corey Lee, who's an athletic catcher with like I like Corey Lee. Yeah, yeah. Corey Lee's pretty good. Um, and like some of the other guys on the on the club are interesting. You know, Dusty Baker's, but they're very young, right? Yeah, Dusty Baker's yeah. kid Darren can like hit a little bit and and run and play second base. Uh, Cameron Eden, the center fielder, can run and like has uh, like average power, but. It's a pretty shallow group, and so Vaughn has seen like a ton of breaking stuff, especially since Pac-12 play started. Like he just walks a ton, and um, you know he just hasn't had the chance to do as much damage as he did last year because teams have pitched around him. So, um, but yeah, like that that team is that team's pretty rough. Now Andrew Seagull is asking Eric if you were in charge of the White Sox first round pick, knowing their farm system and where it ranks, and the player development efforts, do you pick a player that could help in a year or two, like Andrew Vaughn, or do you pick the player that can help later on with an estimated arrival of 2023, like C.J. Abrams? I just, I'm a big best player available believer. I know that there's, when you're a front office on the hot seat, there's there's so much incentive to take the guy who you think is going to get there quickly. Um because yeah, the when when the seventeen year old uh, developmental project. Not that Abrams is like that. Like I think Adri- Abrams is is fairly advanced for a high school player. Um, but 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 yeah, like if you take uh, you know if if Jordan Adams were on the board for the White Sox at three, uh, and you told me that he was going to be really good, but it was going to take like five years, uh, then I'd still be scared to take him because like I might not have my job by that time. So. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that there is a problem of incentive. You know that f- that front office personnel um, have a self interest that at times conflict what is with what is the best long term uh, option for an individual team. Um, I guess it kind of depends on you know what what else you think you have in the system. This is the thing that that came up with Casey Mize in Detroit last year. Uh, it's a thing that has been bandied about with Adley Rutschman and the Orioles this year is, hey, the competitive timeline for that club and the timeline of big league readiness for the player don't really overlap very well. And is that a thing that that team should consider? Um, You know, I think the White Sox, I think it's like it's kind of time, right? Like you kind of have to start um, playing better. I think that if it were – if it were me and you had to like pick one of these things, if it actually did matter to you, then yeah, I would probably take the guy who's going to be ready sooner than later. Now let's chat about the second round. As you and Kylie in, in Mock Draft 3.0, uh, you picked both rounds, the first and second rounds. And for the White Sox, you have them taking prep outfielder Maurice Hampton uh, from Tennessee. 
And uh, Hampton ranks 34th on the board, uh, which is what I used often uh, while looking at the draft prospects. What is the scouting report for Hampton, and why do you think that he could possibly be a fit for the White Sox in the second round? Yeah, we we tried to do the second round uh, at least once. We hit on a bunch of the second rounders last year. You did. Um, it was impressive. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, like you just – some combination – the way we arrive at the second round stuff is – because like we really don't know what's going to transpire. You know, I'm talking – it's Saturday, and we're hearing – crazy stuff between three and six again, which is what we, th- we thought was very stable. Um, but like Hampton, Hampton's a two-sport player. He's physically mature. He kind of is like that Kirby Puckett type build. Um, but like power, speed, you know, he's tooled up. So uh, we arrive at the second round stuff through some combination of um, like it's educated guessing and some of it is hard information about who is on who. Um, and this one is just like a, this is a, 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 this talent at 45 on our board, like at some point in the mock, this kid has to go. Um, and so we put him with the White Sox, like it's, it's, uh, talent diversification. You know, if you ended up taking Vaughn at three, then, uh, you know, a, a prep player at 45 is much more palatable. I don't think we have any you know, real hard stuff connecting Hampton to the White Sox, but it's stuff like, you know, Cleveland historically takes very young players, so some of the young players kicking around um, in the second round, you know, Yordis Valdez, the shortstop from uh, MacArthur High School in, in Florida, is like one of the youngest players in the draft. So like we stick him with Cleveland. Um, and so we, we typically do that type of stuff. Um, if I'm looking around at some other names in like the late comp, early second round who would fit like the White Sox M.O., from recent years, I think that like, um, like Matthew Walner, the right fielder from Southern Miss, is like a lefty bat with power. Um, you've got uh, Ryan Jensen, the righty at Fresno State, who is like sits 94, 97 and holds it for, you know, seven, eight innings. I've seen him a couple times this spring and he just, uh, you know, two seamer, four seamer, he just pounds his own and just bullies uh, college hitters with that fastball right now. Um, he's really athletic and throws a ton of strikes. He's just small. The delivery's kind of weird, but like, um, I really like him. I think he's a good fit. You've got the, both the University of Arizona hitters, Nick Quintana, Cameron Cannon. Um, Quintana, a little bit more traditional, uh, like college third base prospect, while Cannon is like, uh, you know, he plays shortstop right now, but there's no way he plays there in pro ball. Uh, has made a lot of contact. Like, he's more of an analytical pick. Like he's got strong peripherals. Um, so like anybody like that. Like really, you know, I would put I'd put the if Vaughn if Vaughn is the pick at three, then yeah, I think the toolsy high schoolers are in play at forty five. Um, and if Vaughn is not, then you know the, any good value college hitter uh, or pitcher that has fallen. Dre Jamison, the eligible sophomore at Ball State, is like really good too. So. Like anybody like that, it's it's gonna be a it's gonna be a mix. I don't think we have anything concrete on on Chicago in the second round. The White Sox need pitching help, and this draft class seems pretty weak on pitching. Is it worthwhile for yeah. them? I know you mentioned a couple of names, um, but is it worthwhile for the White Sox to find a pitcher in the second round to try to grab uh, someone that's on the top end of this pitching class? I think if there's good value there, right? Like. Um, if 
if any of the guys that I just mentioned, uh, Dre Jamison at Ball State, uh, Ryan Jensen at Fresno State, uh, if like – man, you're right, it is bad. Um, I don't think like Zach Thompson, the Kentucky lefty, has any hope of getting there. Seth Johnson, the righty at Campbell, might be interesting too. Um, Ethan Small, the lefty at Mississippi State – uh, that's a guy who who has like it's a lefty with that the Clayton Kershaw Mackenzie Gore like type of delivery that that sort of uh, backspinning four seam um, vertical arm angle type of lefty um, who has like blown away SEC hitters sitting eighty seven to ninety one because there's just so much life on his fastball up in the zone like that's the type of guy. Who, if you take that guy in the second round, like I totally get it. Um, John Dozakis, the lefty at Texas A&M, uh, he actually got beat up yesterday in his regional start, um, but he is—he's like this—he's got a good slider, and I think like someone told me that the swinging strike rate on his slider is like preposterously high, you know, even though visually it's like pretty average. He's another one of these lefties who. This, like it seems like the spin axis makes a difference, even though the stuff visually is pretty average. Uh, the results have been very strong. Like you know, this is the type of guy who it's like Connor Pilkington, you know, who they ended up with I think in the third round last year. Uh, right. These guys, except for maybe Doxakis, who I'd probably have uh, evaluated pretty similarly to Pilk. Um, I think all of these guys are a little bit better than that. I think they'd be fine um, taking one of them in the second round. It wouldn't be sexy, but. I think they're good prospects. I would like stay away. You know, like Graham Stinson was hurt this spring. Um, mm. I don't know where he's going to go. That might be like you know the Dodgers take someone like that. They've taken injured in, injured arms in the past, and I think there's some teams who just think, eh, all these pitchers basically have the same chance of getting hurt, whether they're hurt now or not. And you know, someone like Stinson or Walker Bueller, um, Mitch White. You know, like the Dodgers have done this a lot. Uh, where they take an uninjured arm and then they're just like, yeah, just shut them down. Like whatever. It doesn't matter how long, if the stuff comes back, then we got at least, you know, a dominant reliever in round two or three. And that's really good. So um, maybe, maybe somebody like that at 45, like we already saw Al Canton was that type of guy, right? Like this guy's hurt. This guy doesn't throw strikes, um, but the stuff is really good. And like the White Sox pulled the trigger on someone like that. So maybe they'll do something like that at 45 too. Who is someone that you think could be drafted earlier than expected, and who is someone that could fall in the draft? Uh, I guess the the name that might fall is Brett Beatty, the third baseman at Lake Travis High School in Texas. He's older. It's an older high schooler. He's basically the age of a junior college prospect. Uh, he's even slightly older uh, by like a couple months than some of the high schoolers drafted last year. Uh, right now, like not, he's not older than they were then. He's like older than they are now. Um, so we have him, you know, tentatively projected to the Rangers at eight for under slot. Uh, it's a third base, maybe first base with seven power and like above average hit. Like the, the combo, the tools are, are really good. Um, and it's just that high school players who are almost 20, they crush, you know, their, 16 and 17 year old peers like they just crushed them so um it's a huge deal for for players and like even the age uh, gap for college players is surprisingly important and telling um so if Beatty does not go eight to texas then maybe he starts to plummet um 
I do think one of the college arms will fall. Um, the, the group that is like packed into the seven through 17, 18, 19 range, uh, includes Nick Lodolo, the lefty at TCU, who I guess has a non-zero chance of being in the White Sox mix, um, at three. Like apparently they like him, but I feel like they, they like him more in the middle of the first round than at three. Um, like Lodolo, we might go seven. But he's divisive. Like, I'm not a huge Lodolo guy. Uh, Jackson Rutledge, the righty at uh, San Jacinto Junior College in Texas. Uh, teams in that 8 through 12 range. Uh, 8 through 14 really love him. Uh, and Alec Manoa, they're both, like, huge, big-bodied guys who throw really hard. Um, but, like, that body type doesn't – if you look at, like, up and down the big leagues, that body type doesn't really succeed for very long. Um, and then Zach Thompson, the lefty at Kentucky, who has really good stuff but has been hurt, and uh, the velocity has sort of been all over the place. George Kirby, the righty at Elon, some teams think is a reliever. Uh, anyone from that group, uh, I think the teams that are like on college pitching in that 7 to 15, 7 to 19 range, uh, one of them has to slip out of that out of that area and down into the early 20s. Um, Okay. And so I think one of them will probably fall as well. And then as far as who might go earlier, uh, someone in the seven to nine range might cut under slot. I think Shea Langoliers, who we have, uh, the catcher from Baylor, who we have in the middle of the first round, might slip up into the top ten. Um, college catching has a tendency to do that. Yeah, and then cut like you know the model based guys, anyone whose whose age. Uh, when the teams run their draft model, uh, and like you see a name way higher than you'd anticipate based on the tools because the draft model, uh, heavily weighs age. And so it's like Kyron Paris, a shortstop from Northern California, a high school kid. Um, I'm trying to think of who some of the younger college players are that might slip up there too. Math, Bl- Blake Walston. Uh, lefty from lefty pitcher from North Carolina high school kid. Uh, that's a pop up name from this spring who I think goes in the back of the first round. Who uh, I, I hadn't heard of, you know, when after last summer, uh, I didn't know like who he was, and now I, it sounds like he's going to go in the first round. All these items we want to follow on Monday, and you'll want to follow Eric on Twitter during the draft and his reports. Down in Arizona, he's at Logan Hagen. Plus, read the Fangraphs draft coverage. It's been outstanding this year, guys. Hey, thanks, man. Uh, the mock draft 4.0 will be coming out on Monday. I'm sure there could even be a mock draft 4.1 just minutes before the Major League Baseball draft on Monday. So definitely check that out. And Fangraphs will have a super chat where Eric and Kylie will answer your questions uh, during the draft and also after the first day to recap as far as who goes where in the first and second rounds. Eric, you and Kylie have been killing it this draft season. Thank you guys so much for your coverage. Uh, I know it's a busy time for you, so thanks again for joining the Sox Machine Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Everybody enjoy uh, the draft and NCAA regionals, and uh, thanks for checking out our stuff. Welcome to the Minor League Report. Luis Robert and Kyle Kubot both made their Birmingham debuts on the 1st of May, and they both had such little issue with adjusting to AA that they won the White Sox Hitter and Pitcher of the Month awards. Robert hit 311 with a 360 on base percentage and 524 slugging with 14 extra base hits and 8 steals, while Kubat posted a 1.38 ERA and averaged 6.5 innings over 6 starts. 
While we're talking about debuts, the White Sox promoted Lincoln Hensman to Birmingham, with former Louisville staff mate Cade McClure taking his place in Winston-Salem. Both made their first starts with their new teams on Sunday. McClure threw six innings of one-run ball, but Hensman hit a wall in the sixth. Running down the affiliates, it was a quiet week for Charlotte, which was held to 16 runs over seven games this week, including three shutouts. Daniel Polk has been struggling over his last 10 games or so, Zach Collins has been relatively quiet, and Danny Mendick followed a six-game hitting streak with a three-game hitless streak. The pitching rotation is Dylan Cease and a ton of journeymen, although Jordan Stevens began a rehab stint with Winston-Salem. It seems like Cease isn't long for Charlotte either. He's thrown at least six innings and averaged 100 pitches over his last three starts. Birmingham is feast or famine. On one hand, you have Robert and Kubat winning awards. On the other hand, Bernardo Flores went on the injured list with an oblique strain, and Luis Basabe left Friday's game early and didn't play on Saturday or Sunday. The healthy prospects aren't standing out either. Gavin Sheets and Laz Rivera made strides from April to May, but they still fell well short of even a 700 OPS last month. Blake Rutherford's May was a disaster, but he's had three straight two-hit games, so that might be progress. Jimmy Lambert runs hot and cold inning to inning, Alec Hansen's had some nice nights, but Zach Birdie has a whip over too. If only everybody could be as consistent as Nick Madrigal, who is starting to offer more than singles on a regular basis. He's carrying an 800 OPS over the last two or three weeks, and he closed out May with 11 stolen bases over his last 15 games. He went hitless on Sunday to snap a seven-game hitting streak, but even then he had a sack fly. He might be finally past the broken wrist he suffered last year with Oregon State. The rest of the Dash roster is more or less where we left it, for better or for worse, mostly worse. No other performances are jumping off the page right now, although, as I mentioned, McClure had an encouraging debut. Down in Kannapolis, with Bryce Bush on the injured list and Corey Zangari just recently returning to action, it's been fairly quiet there too. That said, shortstop Lennon Sosa made some strides over the course of May. He still doesn't take walks, he's drawn just six over 53 games but he hit 259 and slugged 440 this past month with 13 doubles, a triple, and his first two A-ball homers. Combine that with a glove that's supposed to stick it short, and that's the kind of progress you want to see from a 19-year-old. Lastly, the Dominican Summer League is underway. The White Sox don't have a whole lot of name-brand talent there after spending the last two signing periods in the Luis Robert penalty box, but Baseball America's Ben Badler has highlighted some names to watch among lower-dollar signings, including shortstop Anthony Espinoza, first baseman Alberto Bernal, and catcher Luis Pineda. I'll write an overview of the DSL White Sox at some point this week amid all the draft noise. That'll do it for the Meyer League Report. Now let's answer some of your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show, where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to at Sox Machine, liking our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine, and helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. And I'm rejoined on the show with Jim Margulis to answer your guys's questions in the mailbag and Jim our first question comes from RC on Twitter and RC's asking so Dylan Covey came to us with a rule 5 minimal cost has started almost 40 games as far as major league playing time for a rule 5 pick and overall club cost has he been more successful than a normal rule 5 acquisition does he qualify as a good Rickon move uh, well, I think 
with uh, regards to Rule 5 picks, he is a, I guess, relative success story among them. Usually Rule 5 picks, they either get returned to the original club, um, you know, they have some kind of injury that keeps them on the roster the rest of the season, but then they kind of disappear just because, uh, you know, of the lost development time. Or, you know, they manage to stick on a roster all the way through, get sent back down to the minors, and then just fail to develop further, like Adrian Nieto when the uh, White Sox had him. Uh, they, they carried him and, and hoped that, you know, they thought the first year was lost, just trying to get him on the roster all the way through the season. And then they hoped that he'd find another gear when he went down to double A. Never did. And I think that's really the more typical success story. I think with the way the Rule 5 rules are and how, uh, you know, they're a year earlier in the player's development than they used to be, I think it's really hard to find success stories um, that aren't in the bullpen, just some kind of flash in the pan, live arm that figures out command from the new team. And I think so. Kobe, you know, he's more successful or he's had more major league playing time than a lot of Rule 5 picks. I just wouldn't call him a good move because when you look at his uh his record he's he's got a 5.91 ERA uh the White Sox are 14 and 33 in games he's appeared that's basically a replacement level and so i think he's kind of doing a job right now to where if he weren't there somebody else would come in and post a 5.91 ERA and the team would lose you know more than twice as many games they would win with him playing a prominent role in there so yeah i wouldn't call him really a good move or a a success story I think there are ways the White Sox can get more from him, like we've talked about with the opener and, and not having him try to get through a lineup three times. Uh, maybe that's one way that where they can turn it into a a move for the positive column, but right now I think he's more neutral, you know, just a guy territory. RC, thank you so much for your question. Our next P.O. Sox question comes from all the way from Germany, from our friend Chris, and Chris is asking... Was letting Avisil Garcia go a mistake? I'm looking at his stats in Tampa Bay, and he's in the top 10-ish for right fielders in most stat categories, including tied for first in stolen bases, second in OPS, third in on-base percentage and average, and fourth in slugging. I know he is always just a play away from going on the injured list, but considering he played much of last year and considering the appalling state of the White Sox outfield, wouldn't having Avi out there every day been a net positive? It would be, but I wouldn't call it a mistake based on the time when they had to make the decision. He was eligible for a final year of arbitration. Um, the arbitration projection from MLB trade rumors was around $8 million. And considering the Rays signed him for $3.5 million, I, I think the market was saying that it would have been a mistake or it would have been uh, inefficient, whatever you want to call it, for the White Sox to uh, offer Avi a contract and pay him that $8 million. Uh, the rest of the league didn't consider a mistake that the White Sox didn't pay him at that rate because they didn't, uh, the, the team that signed him didn't even come close to meeting that halfway in terms of guaranteed money. So, you know, there's the economic argument. Also, you know, at the time that they were, they had to do it, which is right at the, uh, you know, end of the offseason before the offseason really, the, the hot stove really kicked up. Um, you know, they had to decide what they were doing with the DH spot, with the outfield spot, what exactly, you know, they wanted to, you know, the, the resources they wanted to leave open for a, a somebody who could be projected to be more of a difference maker. And I think in that case, you know, if you're considering... Manny Machado or Bryce Harper or whatever, and you have a whole lot of offseason in front of you, you really don't want to, I guess, get tied up with 
Avi's last year, especially since he's a free agent at the end of the year. And uh, you can either, you know, if they let him go to another team, chances are you can re-sign him if you want to, or at least make an effort for that. So I think, you know, that, that I guess, time pressure of just having one more year made it an easier call as well. Now, you know, seeing how the White Sox went about their offseason and how they signed Manny Machado's friends for the corner spot and DH spot and really aren't that, uh, you know, scintillating of moves and, and Avi would be a clear upgrade on both. And yeah, it looks like a mistake now, but I think when you look at the times they were made, I think it would have been more dispiriting or at least, you know, I guess uh, it would have felt like the White Sox were not in the mood to be creative or, or uh, ambitious with their offseason if they tendered him a contract. Um I guess uh, with the Rays, and you know, when you talk about potential free agents, you have to talk about extensions. But you know, him going to the Rays, I think they are the team that can get the most from him. But as we've seen with the Rays and their power types, their DH types, their uh, their Crones, their Morrisons, uh, their their Dickersons, uh, they're not afraid to let a player go after one good year. So I think, you <laughs> know, should the White Sox want to get Avi back for whatever reason, they should have the opportunity to after the season. Great question, Chris, because, yeah, Avi's having a really good year. Yeah, it's kind of like his uh, his all-star season with a bit more home run power, batting 301, 884 OPS, 10 homers. So, yeah, the homers are there. Homers are there for everybody. So maybe that's kind of what it would look like if he had his all-star season now with the White Sox. But, yeah, he's, he's kind of recaptured that form. Well, Chris, again, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from John, and John is asking, who will the White Sox take with the third pick, but more importantly, who should the White Sox take with the third pick? Well, since you are our resident draft expert, oh, I man. will turn it back to you. Oh, man. <laughs> well, on SoxMachine.com, I'm going to be having a post about Andrew Vaughn. And as you just heard earlier on the show with Eric Loggenhagen, it does sound like the White Sox are moving away from C.J. Abrams. And that's why you're seeing a lot of mock drafts that are coming out on Monday going from C.J. Abrams being mocked to the White Sox to now Andrew Vaughn. And, it, and my column will be posted Monday afternoon-ish, uh, definitely hours before the draft. And if I were in the draft room, Jim, after listening to Nick Hostetler during the White Sox game and him explaining on how the draft room environment is and how they want to be passionate and they want their cross checkers and their scouts and even Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn uh, stump for their guys, the, the players that they want to draft and they want them to be passionate behind it. If I was trying to sell Andrew Vaughn to the White Sox brass, I would say the comp is Paul Konerko. If I did not want the White Sox to draft Andrew Vaughn, I would say the comp is Paul Konerko. And the reason is, is that you don't, you don't draft Paul Konerko third overall. You just don't because the upside is incredibly limited. If you draft Andrew Vaughn third overall, he has to hit. And how many times have we been saying this, Jim? With the first round picks, Zach Collins, really iffy on catching. He really needs to hit in order for this pick to work. Jake Berger, iffy at third base. He really needs to hit in order for this pick to work. Nick Madrigal, he's limited to second base because of his arm, but he really needs to hit for this pick to work. And here we are with Andrew Vaughn being mocked to the White Sox third overall, and he can hit. 
But, you know, we say that about a lot of guys, especially at Birmingham. Look at all those guys at Birmingham that are still struggling. And Luis Robert is just embarrassing them right now. Uh, and he's just been awesome. And a lot of those guys at Birmingham that are struggling did hit with Winston-Salem, and we thought they could possibly hit in Birmingham, and they're not. So the White Sox are having a difficult time right now developing hitters, and I guess their only saving grace is that AAA changed the baseball, and all of a sudden it's making guys look better uh, at AAA than they did at AA. So I think the White Sox are going to take Andrew Vaughn with a third pick overall, and I think they're going to do that because – Vaughn is someone, theoretically, Jim, they can rush up the system, and if they decide that they're not going to keep Jose Abreu long-term, here you go. He is Vaughn would be our new first baseman, and Andrew Vaughn will be in the middle of the White Sox lineup for many years to come, and you could pair him up with Deloy Jimenez, and then all of a sudden you have someone that could hit 30-plus home runs in the lineup. I think the White Sox should take C.J. Abrams. I think the White Sox need more athleticism in their farm system. I think the White Sox need more shortstops in their farm system. And the last time the White Sox had a really toolsy player like C.J. Abrams was Tim Anderson. And I think that's been working out pretty well for the White Sox. And if you truly believe as an organization you are making efforts – to improve and put in the investment into your player development, I think C.J. Abrams is a great test case, and he is worth the investment in the third overall pick, and he is someone that you can put into your system and help groom, and yeah, he may not join the Major League team into 2023, but at that point, Tim Anderson is going to be 30, 31 years old, who know, and at the end of his contract, so who knows what the White Sox want to do then. Uh, and then you're going to have this possible stud in your farm system in Abrams that can not only play shortstop, but if you need him to play center field or maybe even second base over Nick Madrigal, you have those options. There's a, there's a lot of growth opportunity with the prospect like C.J. Abrams, unlike Andrew Vaughn, which Andrew Vaughn could do one thing. He's really good at that one thing. But it's one thing. Do you think he's somebody who can transform a lineup, even if he's a first baseman? Because Canerco really doesn't. You know, Canerco is a good middle of the order hitter, but he didn't. You know, he's not like a Miguel Cabrera type or, you know, somebody who is a star attraction. No, I don't think Vaughn is. I think Vaughn is someone that'll hit 280 with a 350 on base percentage, and he'll be someone that yeah consistently can hit 30 to 35 home runs a season. Does that transform a lineup? I don't know. Yeah, it's. I have a hard time with this one just because I, I know Vaughn has some uh, some big fans out there. Keith Law is one of them. In you know, when going over his theoreticals, like he floated the idea of uh, Baltimore signing Vaughn with the first overall pick, and he didn't hate it. I know he's a big supporter of it, and you know when you look at that and you look at uh, you know say you know the, the people who believe you know Vaughn is the you know, ready to hit now basically. You know, it kind of takes me back to a draft like with, you know, Houston taking Mark Appel over uh, Chris Bryant. And, you know, Appel was a college pitcher and such, but, you know, Bryant was by far the consensus top college bat. Uh, no question about it. And, you know, when, when the dust cleared and the dust cleared pretty quickly, uh, you know, Bryant was the easy choice. And I just wonder, you know, when it comes to these drafts and, and when you have like the best 
college player. Another one is Carlos Rodon, you know, a pick, getting picked behind Tyler Kolek and Brady Aiken. Um, just ones where it's just like a little bit too clever for somebody who's that good. I just, you know, I have a hard time telling with Vaughn uh, if he's that good to where you'd see him, you know, two years from now, be in the middle of somebody else's lineup, hitting 35 homers and being, you know, an, an all-star candidate hitter and saying, oh, we shouldn't have overthought it. Well, that's why I asked Eric, does Vaughn have the ability to be like Peter Alonzo for the New York Mets? I mean, Alonzo is providing huge impact in that lineup for the New York Mets. But, you know, Eric talked about it's it would be in a different way. I mean, Vaughn doesn't have 70 grade power. He just doesn't like Alonzo. Yeah. So let's see. That would be my my concern. And then you have all these. I just wouldn't want the, I guess where, where I wrestle with it is, as you mentioned, they have a bunch of guys struggling to stay off first base and you can, you know, maybe add Eloy Jimenez as somebody who has to find first base at some point if he doesn't, you know, if his athleticism and left doesn't improve. Um, yeah, I don't want that to uh, be an obstacle. Like, I don't want failed picks or, you know, I guess struggling picks, whatever you want to call them between Berger and Collins and Gavin Sheets and so forth to be the reason you don't draft a great hitter who happens to play first base. Um, so that, that's where I come down. Like, I have no problem with the White Sox drafting an athlete. I just, you know, don't quite know. Like, yeah, I think I saw a quote about, I'm trying to remember from who, about Vaughn saying, like, his swing is so athletic and everything else he does isn't. Do you remember who said that? I think it was Eric Loggenhagen. Okay. So maybe, yeah, the same, uh, same source. Yeah. That would, that would make sense. That line up with what he said. Um, but yeah, it's just, I don't quite know what to make of it. And I guess I wouldn't hate it if they drafted Vaughn just because of that whole, you know, not overthinking it thing. But if the White Sox had draft an athlete, I would understand it. And I would be, you know, I, I think I'd be more enthusiastic than I would about Vaughn. And I would, you know, if they draft Vaughn, I would just keep my fingers crossed that this is the college bat that clicks. Vaughn would be put under a microscope immediately. Yeah. Immediately. If he does not hit right away, it'd be like frying an ant with a lens, a magnifying lens on the White Sox, on Nick Hostetler. That's what it would be. Because, I don't know, do people still believe in Zach Collins as far as his hitting ability? No, not, not, I think not as a first baseman or DH, which is why they keep really pressing this catcher thing. Right. Gavin Sheets, I mean, he's starting to hit a little bit better. But is he the long-term first baseman for the White Sox? No. Okay. Jake Berger. If you draft Andrew Vaughn, Vaughn leaps Jake Berger. So Jake Berger becomes trade bait. So then what you're hoping for is that Jake Berger does hit, hits well enough to be moved in a trade. Unless somehow he still managed to play third base, <laughs> even despite the two ruptured Achilles, but that's yeah that that would be impressive, and I hope Jake can do it. But I, I'm just I'm just being realistic here. Yeah. Like, and then there there's the other player that we we haven't talked about a lot. I didn't even write a draft profile on him because I really didn't think that he was going to be high enough on the White Sox draft board, and that's Vanderbilt Vanderbilt outfielder JJ Bladé. And it sounds like scouts are much higher on Blade than I am. And Blade had a terrific season this year, leading the nation in home runs against the SEC, which is amazing because the level of pitching that Blade faces. But it's one good year. He's had injury issues in the past. It sounds like he's overcome those and he's passed them. He is a right fielder. 
and he's got a very good arm, but he does not have the athleticism to play in center field. I mean, how would White Sox fans feel with the third pick in the draft, the White Sox draft J.J. Blade? Well, it's like uh, uh, Andrew Benintendi was a one-good-year guy at Arkansas when he was drafted, and that was the concern around him. Sure. And Jonathan India last year for Florida had one year of good play, and he was selected fifth overall by Cincinnati. But, you know, we talk about these corner infielders for the White Sox. They keep drafting these guys. Well, they take Blade. Okay, here we go. Here's another corner outfielder. So you're adding another outfielder into the mix here uh, for a farm system that's just completely piled up in outfielders and it seems to stop the progress for some guys. But then again, there's some outfielders that aren't hitting at all. So maybe that does open up spots. Yeah, I... I I would like the White Sox to take C.J. Abrams. I don't think they're going to do that. And instead, I do think they will take Andrew Vaughn. And their answer is going to be Jose Abreu is not going to be a White Sox player forever. And we have found his replacement. That's the way I feel about it. Uh, I'm really keeping my fingers crossed that some Adley Rutschman scenario happens. Because that's, I think, the only one I would really have fun with everybody else i just don't quite have a good feel for adley rushman is the miracle (laughs) yeah we've seen it before with carlos Rodon. no matter how you guys feel about carlos Rodon today that was a miracle for carlos Rodon to fall to the white Sox third overall in that draft it has happened before so what you are hoping for is that baltimore does not take Adley Rushman or Bobby Wood Jr. with the first pick in the draft. And that opens up the possibility of Rushman dropping to the White Sox. And then I will feel, and I think every White Sox fan would feel a lot better about that situation than whether the White Sox decided between a high school shortstop like C.J. Abrams or Andrew Vaughn. Because there you go. You have your future catcher in Adley Rushman. And there's a lot of buzz and excitement about that prospect. But, John, it's an excellent question. As a reminder, we are going to be having the live Sox Machine Draft Show uh, starting at 5.30 p.m. Central Time, which we're going to be carrying it all the way through the White Sox first round pick. So if you'd like to listen in and get our live reactions on who the White Sox do take, you can tune in. That's going to be available on SoxMachine.com and also on Mixler.com slash SoxMachine. So, John, thank you so much for your question. I guess, Jim, did you give an answer? Who do you want the White Sox to take? I don't know. <laughs> I guess. Great yeah, answer. That's basically my answer. Is like, I don't really have one. I'm, I'm like, yeah, I guess I outlined my thinking just like if – Vaughn were just like a little bit like, as you mentioned, Pete Alonzo, good, a good comp. Like, you know, that if he had that kind of power, I think I would feel okay about it. Like I'd feel good about drafting him, even though he's a first baseman and so forth. But if he's, if he's Paul Konerko at his best, I mean like, yeah, you take Konerko for his career, probably third overall or whatever. Like you wouldn't complain about that, getting that outcome, but yeah, just it's, it wouldn't excite me. I guess I'd be okay with it. It wouldn't excite me. Abrams wouldn't, you know, I'd feel okay about it, but yeah, it is long development curve. Blade, I think would be like, I guess kind of in the middle, like, uh, I guess not as exciting as an up the middle player, more exciting than a first baseman. 
And maybe if he does have like a Benintendi type uh, surge to where like, okay, he's figured it all out and uh, this isn't a flash in the pan, then that'd be kind of fun. I know the, the Marlins are all over him, I think. So, you know, if he doesn't, if he gets past the White Sox, then I think Marlins will take him. But yeah, just like it's like, I, I you know, you mentioned Blade, it's like I'd been rolling that around in my head. Just like, would he beat Bear? Would he be like terrible as a, as an option? If he can play a good right field as left-handed bat that can, you know, get on base and everything like That'd be kind of cool, but yeah, just I don't feel great about any of them, and I wish picking third was more fun. This is the draft in which the White Sox, if they could trade, would either bundle up all their picks and move to first overall and swap places with Baltimore, or they would trade down. Yeah, and <laughs> it's it's like, yeah. You can't do that. <laughs> I really want to know what this Rutschman smoke is about, it's like just trying to lower his uh, demands. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. Everyone that I talk to about Baltimore and their general manager, because he's done it before in Houston, and you listed those examples, then maybe we could be in for surprise Monday evening. But we'll see. Maybe the miracle will happen, John, and maybe on Tuesday we are delighted with glee that Adley Rushman has joined the White Sox system. But John, it is an excellent question. One that I'm sure I'm still going to be pondering about, and you can read more about on SoxMachine.com. And like I said, we'll be covering the first round of the White Sox uh, first pick uh, on the Sox Machine draft show live that you can listen to on SoxMachine.com. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions this week uh, for this podcast, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sox Machine and also help support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. You may have noticed for those that don't support the show right now on Patreon uh, that you got to hear some fan questions during Eric Loggenhagen's segment. Those questions came from Patreon. And if you would have interest in submitting questions for our future guests and you want to hear those answers, uh, moving forward, those questions typically are only for our Patreon edition of the podcast, which is an ad-free show and our Patreon supporters get an opportunity to ask questions to the guests. They also get an opportunity to ask additional P.O. Sox questions, which Jim and I answer weekly. So if you like our content and you want more, go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up. There's different tiers that you can join uh, per month and you get additional content from us and you get additional swag. We think it's worthwhile for you guys to help support us. We love your support. We greatly appreciate everything that you guys do for us so if you want more from us go to patreon.com slash machine to sign up and again remember we do have the live major league baseball draft show that will be starting at 5 30 p.m central time on monday for those that are going to miss the draft show do not worry that episode will be recorded and will be uploaded into the podcast feed so for nostalgic reasons, I guess if you wanted to relive the moment of who the White Sox take third overall, you'll be able to listen to that recording of that draft show on starting on Tuesday. But I want to thank our guest, Eric Loggenhagen from Fangraphs.com for joining us. And definitely check out Sox Machine this week as we'll be having the draft trackers and Jim will be writing 
multiple articles when the White Sox make their picks during the 2019 Major League Baseball draft. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in a variety of ways. One, I hear iTunes is going away. So you can subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, which is going to be a new app for your Apple devices. So remember, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts. Also on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.